Let's pray. Let's pray. Father, as we open your word, uh, give us all a sense that these, that the words we cite, that we look at, we see, we read in the scripture are your words to us. Uh, give us a sense of that. Help me to teach it rightly and well. And as always, give the hearers discernment. Um, give them grace and discernment to hold on to what is good in it. And uh, uh, Father, we, we, uh, we come to you now through your word, uh, asking you to speak to us in the name of Jesus. Amen. I have a uh, a cousin. Uh, my 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 sister's here, of course, and she has a cousin too. So we have a cousin um, who, back in the early '70s, uh, got involved in uh, the Krishna consciousness uh, movement. Uh, you know the Hari Krishnas. You know, if you're if you're of a certain age, you know you remember, you know gaggles of these guys. You know, like at airports and uh, other other public places. You know, with their uh, with their saffron robes, it's a color color of Mark's shirt who is leading us in worship today. They, it's just color of his shirt, he, <laughs> and that's what they wrote, wore robes of that color, and they had their heads shaved except for these little ponytails in the back, and they'd be at the airports and clanging their little hand symbols and and uh, you know beating their little drums and and, and chanting, chanting uh, Hari Krishna Hari, you know, chanting uh, the uh, the name of Krishna, the god of choice. Uh, in that particular sect, there really was a sect of, of Hinduism. You know, Hinduism with their thousands and millions of gods. Well, Krishna, that's their, their, their favorite. Uh, you remember, uh, once again, if you're of a certain age, you, know, you remember the uh, ex-Beatle George Harrison and his song, My Sweet Lord, you know, My Sweet Lord, George Harrison. If you do, you, just to remind, that song, is, it's not about your sweet Lord. You know, if you're a Christian, it's not about your sweet Lord. Cause it, and it kind of... Uh, Flip-flop the hallelujahs with the Hare Krishnas in that in that song. It was a, it was a uh, Krishna consciousness song. Well, our our cousin, uh, he was all in. I mean, all in. Not just with the hairdo or the hair don't or whatever you want to call it, you know. But or then the robe and the clothing. But 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 all of it. I mean, he he moved in. He he lived at the uh, at the Krishna consciousness or whatever they call it, the temple in Cleveland, Ohio. He, he stayed there and, and he, ren- he renounced the idea of uh, private property, which was, he renounced the idea of pri- private property and it wasn't only about his stuff, it was about your stuff too. He renounced this concept of private property with your things as well as his things. And, uh, but he especially was a, was a proselytizer uh, for this, uh, this faith. And, and he, he told me about, I remember him telling me when he was, you know, he's making his pitch, you know, he's really trying to get everybody on board and, and me, uh, me as well. And he was telling me about their idea, and I don't remember what they call it. They didn't call it heaven, I don't think. But their idea of heaven or nirvana or sator, I can't remember what they called it, but, but he told me that, that in their heaven, uh, Krishna, which is basically kind of their Messiah figure, this 
blue-skinned, dark-haired boy, uh, Krishna, would, had the ability to make every single person there uh, feel like they were the only one there. And it was just them and Krishna. Is Krishna and them, and he could make every. There might be millions. Like it could be millions of people there, in that in that heavenly place. But but Krishna had the ability to make everybody feel like they were alone with him. He's there. He's the. Everybody there would feel like they're the sole object of his attention, and he'd pour out his love on on them. And and uh, it's like a honeymoon kind of way. You know, two people just completely wrapped up in in each other captivated with one another but in this case you know it would be the individual devotee uh and 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 krishna and i and i didn't know it then i didn't know it then because i i was i was still a few years away from uh becoming a, a believer in christ myself i, I was a few I, I wouldn't be saved for a few years but i i didn't so i didn't realize it then but I do now, and thinking back on it, how dramatically different that that idea is. You know that 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 uh, that picture of heaven. How dramatically different from the biblical picture. Last week we began to consider the third of three themes that I've been tracing through Revelation 21, 1 through 8, which, which really, not just three themes, but those three themes turn out to be three characteristics of the new heavens and the new earth, um, what theologians call the eternal state, uh, what I've been calling, you know, not the eternal state, so you wouldn't think state is government or something like that, but, the, but uh, what I've been calling the forever future, like what's coming, and we've been weeks and weeks in this, this is five or six, this is six, maybe six or seven sermons here, and this is this uh, really kind of coming to the end of it here. But those three themes uh, have been were justice, renewal, and fellowship. Uh, the new heavens and the new earth will be characterized by justice. That's one of, the, one of the themes there. And what do you mean by justice? What do I mean? The setting of, what's the scripture mean? The setting of all wrongs right, uh, the setting of everything right, the final judgment on all evil, and the confining of evil uh, so that justice cannot be corrupted in the new heavens and new earth going forward. Uh, so it's justice is, was one of the themes. And then the second one, we spent a few weeks on it, is renewal, renewal of all things. The, the new heavens and the new earth, Revelation 21 22, teach, and that's the whole, the, that whole section is about is about what's the forever future. And I say that because Revelation 19, the return of Christ, it's after Christ returns to the earth. Revelation chapter 20, the millennial kingdom, the, thousand, the reign of Christ on the earth, the thousand year reign, whatever you, whatever you think about that, however you turn about it, this comes after that. The great, at the end of that chapter, Revelation 20, the great white throne judgment, the confining and the judging of evil and and all you know, evil, uh, whether it's angelic or human, and the confining of evil. So it's after, after. What's what's the forever part of future? What's the forever part? Not just you know the tribulation or the return of Christ or you know the, things like that. But what's forever? Revelation twenty-one two, and and it's going to be characterized by the renewal, justice, and the renewal of all things. 
and we settled on the, I settled on the term renewal because it's more than restoration. Because it's things that are renewed are made better than they ever were before. And that renewal of all things it goes from the bodies of the redeemed that are made new, the resurrection, resurrection. And the resurrection body, it's more than restoration to what you were when you were 15 or 20 or 25 or 30 when you were at your peak, but it's better, better than it, than it ever was. And, it, it's, and I argued that it's not just, not just the bodies of the redeemed that are made new, but the creation itself will be made new. And we went to Romans chapter 8, the end of the chapter there, well, uh, 18 through 25, I believe, that we're arguing that the, the setting for those resurrection bodies made new. Uh, Behold, I am making all things new. It says in Revelation 21.5, I am making all things new. And I argued and still do, of course, that making all things new is not the same as making all new things. Making all new things would be replacement. But no, this speaks of redemption, of transformation. And the glory of God's salvation, I've argued, is not in throwing away and discarding and getting rid of something that has been old and ruined by sin, and replacing it with something brand new. But the glory of God's salvation is in God's gracious, miraculous transformation of old into new. He takes what's old and makes it new. He takes what has been ruined by sin and makes it whole and right. He takes that which is defiled and makes it pure like me and you if you're in Christ. I once was lost, but now am found. The same I that was lost is now found. I once was blind, but now I see. He didn't get rid of the blind guy and get a seeing guy. No, he took the blind person and made him to be seen. The new heavens and new earth... It, what people say, you can't make a silk purse out of a sow's ear. That's the saying, right? You can't make a silk purse out of a sow's ear. That's what sow... No, you can't. God can. <laughs> and salvation is God taking a sow's ear, making a silk purse out of it. Whether it's me, whether it's the creation. The renewal of all things. The new heavens and new earth will be characterized by renewal. And last week, we finally got to the, the third characteristic of new heavens and new earth, and that is fellowship. That's the word I said all up, fellowship. And last week, you know, it's two parts. We started last week. We finished today. And last week, we considered what really should be first. It's, it really should be the first thing you think about if you think about Fellowship in the forever future. Uh, fellowship in the eternal state. It really should be first. And, and what's first is this, that at the core and center of the life in the new heavens and new earth is a fellowship with God. It's a fellowship with God that really, and we could apply renewal to that too, because it's better, it's closer, it's more intimate, 
It's more significant than anything we could experience in our present fallen bodies in this fallen world. But it's a fellowship with God that is... Uh, and how does it put that? Revelation 22, just, uh, we won't look at the passage again, but they will see God. And we said seeing God is, speaks of just a, a, a deep, deep, ultimate level of communion, of relationship, of intimacy, of fellowship. And I say it's better there, because I think of the Apostle Paul told us that. That when he said, Philippians chapter 1, that he preferred to depart and be, he's thinking about this. He's got a trial coming up. He might, be, he might die. He might suffer. The, he might be executed. And he says, I don't know which to choose. Remember, you know, Philippians chapter 1. I don't know which to choose because it's better. You know, I prefer to depart, depart this life and be with Christ for that is far better. That's just what he says. For that is far better is what he says. Paul certainly must have had a close relationship with the Lord in, you know, in his life, right? Don't we, don't we get that out of reading the, uh, you know, all of his letters? And This guy is close to the Lord. And the experience he's had, you know, these visions he's had and caught up into the third heaven and all of that. And, and he, he, knows what it, he knows something you and I don't know. He knows what it was like to, uh, as, as Peter says, have his... The, the, his sails filled with the wind of the Holy Spirit so that what he wrote was God's words. And he wrote inspired text. You know, the, uh, the half to two-thirds of the New Testament came from his pen. And so he, we, he had to, we know that he had a close relationship with the Lord, maybe closer than what you and I have experienced. But he, even for him, he says, departing and being with Jesus is far better. Far better. Um, we enjoy uh, Skyping uh, with, with our... Uh, everybody knows what Skyping is, right? Skype. We enjoy Skyping with, uh, with our, um, our, our daughter, Rebecca, and her husband, Josh, and the grandkids. Uh, Eden and Georgie, about once a week. Before there was Skyping, we, we just a, it was long-distance phone call, right? It was just a phone call, right? And you enjoy that, and, it, and, it, and it's good. But even the Skyping, when you can see them, even with the Skyping, it's not the same as when they come for a visit. Oh, when the grands come for a visit, that's why we call them the grands, you know, the, when the grands come for a visit, you know, you can you not only see them and talk to them, but they can, you can hug them and, and they can sit on your lap and read a book, you know, it's, it's, it's far better, far better. So in much the same way, we as believers, we have a fellowship with God now, and we can have a fellowship with God, and, and we can all, you know, we can all... Uh, do things to enhance that, right? You know, in, in times in my life and yours when we're a, a little more distant from the Lord than we've been in the past, you know, it's because we've moved away, right? We've moved away. Well, we know what to do to come closer, draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. But, you know, that fellowship that we have with the Lord now in prayer, in prayer, that's one of the ways, certainly. In worship, 
uh, not just when we get together for worship, but when you worship God privately, you know, your own private time with the Lord. Uh, through the Scriptures, I think. Through the Scriptures, when we're reading the Scriptures, that's, that's, there's a fellowship with God in there. These are God's words to me. Uh, through the, even through the guidance and through, even through the conviction of the Holy Spirit, even through that the time of fellowship with God, conviction of the Holy Spirit, it's not pleasant when He is pointing out to me and in this internal way something that's not right with me that I need to repent of, I need to confess, I need to seek forgiveness. Even that's a fellowship, it's a, it's a communion, it's a connection with God, isn't it? So we can, those things, all of those things are like, uh, are like talking long distance with your family on the phone or, or even like Skyping perhaps. But what is coming for us in heaven and in the new heavens and new earth, you know, the forever part of the future, Revelation 21, 22, it's a being with the Lord in a far greater way. Better. Better. If I go, Jesus said, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Where I am, you may be also. And it isn't just being in the same place that makes it better. It's also the fact that our fellowship with God will be unhindered by what Paul calls in Romans chapter 7, this body of sin. You know, that frustration. So, so no more, and I don't know if I'm going to be talking about me and not you, but I suspect I'm talking about you too. But how about this? In our being with God, being with God in worship, being with God in prayer, being with God in, in uh, opening the Scripture and hearing from Him, uh, no more internal struggle with the, uh, with the remains of sin. No more, uh, how about this, put it this way, no more wanting to be with the Lord and at the same time the flesh not wanting to be with the Lord. <laughs> wanting to do other things. Wanting to be d- distraction, you know, this... this uh, how, how good will fellowship with God be when you and I are absolutely pure in our motives, in our heart, and no internal, no fight, no struggle with it. And in the same place, breathing the same air. So the new heavens and new earth will be characterized by a tremendous fellowship with God. And that has to be first. Now, today, you know, here's what we're extending it and we're finishing up the topic. Here's the question. Does the fellowship that characterizes the new heavens and new earth, the forever future, does it extend beyond fellowship with God to fellowship with others? I think... I think it's a shame that some Christians are unsure about this. I think, there, I think where there's doubt about that, 
uh, the forever future is impoverished uh, in, in our own minds. And the hope and the joy that really should derive from our forever future is diminished. And our motivation for living lives of sacrifice for Christ now, it's diminished. And yet I do hear, I do hear the temptation to seek life like we have to jam in everything that's worth living. We have to jam it in now in the years of our life so we don't miss something. That, that temptation is greater when, we, when we're unsure about this, whether we'll have fellowship with others in the forever future. And yet I hear it. I, I, I do hear doubts about that. And it probably goes to teaching that you, sh- you should have been taught better. <laughs> but, I, but I hear it. People, say, people ask, do you think we'll recognize each other? Do you think we'll recognize each other? Or we'll recognize other people in heaven or you know, in the new heavens, new earth, in the forever future? Uh, will I know my loved ones? Do, will we have anything to do besides worship God? Will there be anything to do besides worship God? Well, let's think through this. Let's think through it a little bit. God made us to be social creatures, didn't He? Do you, do you remember in, uh, from Genesis, you remember the first thing that God said wasn't good? You remember the first thing God said wasn't good? Uh, surprisingly, it came before sin. Sin hasn't made its appearance yet, and God already said something wasn't good. Uh, it's Genesis 2.18. The Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. You remember that? It's not good that the man should be alone. And as a man, as a male, by which I mean uh, a cisgendered male person, <laughs> learned that uh, cisgendered means I identify with the, with the sex with which I was identified at birth or assigned at birth. I find that, as a man, another way, I find that verse a little embarrassing. And here, here's what's embarrassing about it. Okay, Genesis chapter 1, God calls light into existence and He calls it good. He, he said, there's, let there be light and there's light and God saw that it was good. He separates the land from the sea and says it's good. Yeah, up springs the vegetation and God says it's good. And He makes the sun and the moon and God sees that it's good. Here's what it said, and God saw that it was good. Genesis 1.18 he, he makes all sea life, and God said that it was good. He saw, he saw that it was good. He makes all animal life, you know, land, animals, and God saw that it was good. Then he looks the whole thing over, and he says, it's very good. Then he looks at the man, he says, that's not good. <laughs> it is not good for the man to be alone. That's not a good situation right there. <laughs> And then sin, well, let's put it back up a little bit. If it's not good for the man to be alone, why wouldn't we expect fellowship with other people to be a necessary part of what will be the forever future? And when sin makes it appear, its appearance in Genesis chapter three, it, yes, does it break God's? Does it break man's fellowship with God? Of course it does, right? 
It breaks fellowship with God, which is answered in the new heavens and the new earth. You know, I will be their God. They will be my people. I will dwell with them. They will see my face. What about the fellowship with other people? Because sin not only broke fellowship with God, it fouled up human relationships as well, didn't it? It broke fellowship with one another. And specifically, you have Genesis 3.16, The Lord said to the woman, Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. So let's just, you know, rather than dive into that verse, let's just say the 30,000 foot view of that verse, sin brought conflict into the husband-wife relationship. Right? <laughs> we'll just say that much for now. Sin brought, and there's two people on the earth at the time and their problems. Two people. Sin breaks fellowship with other people. So I ask the same question. If, if the curse, and if sin and the curse resulted in broken and marred fellowship between people, wouldn't we expect the new heavens, new earth, the forever future, to address that and to restore, and not just restore, but renew fellowship with other people. Think of this. Do you remember when they asked Jesus which commandment was the greatest? You remember that? Which command? And, and of course, you know they, they did it only. They're just trying to trip Jesus up uh, they're trying to get him to take a position on a controversial issue so that no matter what he answered, at least they'd, they'd narrow down his, uh, his fandom. You know, they, it'd make him take a controversial position so that if people had thought the other thing, they would be against Jesus. You know, they would have a contrary position. But he gave his answer anyway, and here's his answer. This is Matthew 22. And he said to, and he said to him, you shall, here's the answer, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. That's helpful for our question. The first and greatest commandment has to do with loving God. The second, the corollary, the complementary commandment has to do with loving people. So, Jesus saw no conflict whatsoever between loving God with all of His or our heart and soul and mind and loving other people at the same time. There's, it's not a zero-sum game as though if we have love for others uh, our love for God is diminished. That's not how Jesus saw it. So it might seem spiritual to somebody to say, I love God and I don't have room for any other love. I, I love God but not other people. But actually, the Bible, First John, makes the opposite argument. If you don't love people, you, don't, you can't love God. You don't love God. And yet, there has been a tendency in some periods of Christian history where really the prevailing thought about the eternal state, the forever future, is that our love and our fellowship with God would be so all-consuming 
that would really, they were really not going to have room for any other loves, any, anyone else. Uh, they, they spoke of beatific vision, and it should mean this all-consuming. When we see God as He is and when we'll be pure in heart, we'll just love I mean, everything will be Christ and God, and we'll just love Him. I think it's probably where the eternal church service comes from. You know, with nothing but just worshiping God and nothing else going on except that. And Christians worry about that. Think, oh, wow, you know, eternal church. They're long enough the way they are. And that's, that was the idea. It's, that was the idea that Christ can have no rivals for a Christian's love. And once we reach heaven in our sinless state, our fellowship with Him will be all-consuming. The great theologian John Calvin, uh, the, the theologian of the Reformation, he, he's an example of this kind of thinking. And let me read you a short quote. He, he wrote, To be in paradise and to live with God is not to speak with each other and be heard by each other, but it is only to enjoy God, to feel His goodwill and rest in Him. Well, you know what? Thankfully, Jesus saw no conflict between loving God with everything He had and loving people. Does, does, and that's obvious, isn't it? Did, does Jesus love God, love the Father, with, with all his heart and all his mind and all his soul? Yes. Does he love you? Yes. Is there a conflict between those things? No. He not only has room for you in his heart, he has room for you in his schedule. I will come in and eat with them, dine with them, and they with me, right? Communion. And, and thankfully, you know, there, there were other theologians who have, and are, other theologians see fellowship with other people not as some theological problem. The, uh, fellowship with other people in the eternal state, in the forever future, not as some sort of problem, but as a tremendous blessing and an integral part of our forever future. Let me, let me read one, just a, a little bit longer quote. America's greatest theologian, I think, Jonathan Edwards. The language a little bit antiquated, but not very bad. Every Here's this quote, Jonathan Edwards. Every Christian friend that goes before us from this world is a ransom spirit waiting to welcome us in heaven. There will be the infant of days that we have lost below through grace to be found above. There the Christian father and mother and wife and child, and friend, with whom we shall renew the holy fellowship of the saints, which was interrupted by death here, but shall be commenced again in the upper sanctuary, and then shall never end. There we shall have companionship with the patriarchs, and fathers, and saints of the Old and New Testaments, and who, those of whom the world was not worthy, and there, above all, we shall enjoy and dwell with God the Father, whom we have loved with all our hearts on earth, and with Jesus Christ, our beloved Savior, who has always been to us chief among ten thousands, and altogether lovely, and with the Holy Spirit, our sanctifier and guide, our comforter, 
and shall be filled with all the fullness of the Godhead forever. You, you can kind of hear echoes of that old debate. You know, if, if, we, if we love God, you know, if, we, if God is there and we're in perfect fellowship with Him, is there, room for, or is there room for relationship and fellowship with other people? You can kind of hear echoes of that old debate in a statement by the English Puritan uh, Richard Baxter. He died 1691. And he says, I know Christ is all in all. And that, is the, that it is the presence of God that makes heaven to be heaven. But yet it much sweetens the thoughts of that place to me that there, that there are such a multitude of my most dear and precious friends in Christ. And this idea of fellowship with other people in the new heavens and new earth, in the forever future, it it enhances it enhances our view you know i'd like to i'd like to meet richard baxter i'd like to ask him what it was like to make a statement that went against the great theologian john calvin back in the day i'd like to meet the old testament patriarchs the new testament saints the church fathers and as i get older more and more of my own as richard baxter's dear and precious friends with whom i look forward to picking up where we left off but this time without sin sometimes messing it up and this time without the specter of death looming to bring it to an end at any point. Now, if I were a Puritan, it's like a seven, eight minutes to seven minutes to noon here. If I were a Puritan minister, and, and more importantly, if you were a Puritan parishioner and you had a capacity for a two and a half hour sermon, I would multiply my arguments here. I would argue that when the Apostle Paul teaches about why we Christians do not grieve as those who have no hope, I would argue that the hope is not just that our dear departed are, are safe in the arms of Jesus, but the hope is that there's reunion coming one day. I'd argue that from the Scripture. I'd argue that from 1 Thessalonians 4. I would argue that at the Mount of Transfiguration that Moses and Elijah are recognized as who they are and they're talking with each other and interacting with each other. They have fellowship. I would argue that Jesus speaks of multi-generational fellowship in the context of extended family when he says that in, his, in the kingdom of God, many will come from east and west and recline a table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I would argue from the divinely intended and designed body of Christ that its members are designed by God to be interdependent on one another in the way He's gifted people in the body of Christ, making relationship 
and interaction with each other in absolute necessity. And, and I would argue that there's no reason to expect things will be different in that regard in the new heavens and new earth, in the forever future. That people be gifted in different ways, able to do different things, designed by God. I would argue from the heavenly scenes in Revelation uh, that are, you know, the scene in heaven, that it's full of communication between the saints, between the angels and God, and they're doing all kinds of cooperative things like worship. And I would argue from our passage, you know, we haven't <laughs> looked at the passage um, today, but in Revelation, I would argue that, uh, that Revelation 21 that it's a, it's a communal thing. It's a collective thing. It's not individual. It's a, they will be my people. I will be their God. I will dwell among them. I would argue it's a group. It's not, it's not, it's not a million individuals who all think they're the only one there with Jesus all alone. I would even argue from the nature of God I would argue from the relational nature of God Himself, a triunity, a trinity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that God Himself is, is relational in some way in His nature, and that we are relational beings made in His image. And the eternal state must be. I, I feel like I could sack up enough arguments, I could finally get to that wonderful... You know, I read Puritan sermons. I could finally get to that wonderful word that I have that I have read in Puritan sermons sometimes. Thirteenthly, <laughs> I think I could get there, <laughs> but I'm not a Puritan minister. I'm not a Puritan preacher. You're not a Puritan churchgoer. So I'll cut it short. Wrap it up with a quote. One quote from a World War II era pastor of uh, uh, Mark cited Spurgeon. Today. He's a, he was a, he was a pastor at Spurgeon. Uh, Metropolitan Tabernacle, London, England, World War II era. He was, he's actually, I believe here he's speaking of his, uh, his deceased wife. He said, if I knew that never again would I recognize that beloved one with whom I spent more than 39 years here on earth, my anticipation of heaven would much abate. To say that we shall be with Christ and that will be enough is to say that there we shall be without the social instincts and affections which mean so much to us here. Life beyond cannot mean impoverishment, but the enhancement and the enrichment of life as we have known it here at its best. So let me just say, if you have the question, the answer, in my view, and, for, and I've, try to not just take my word, but I hope you see it flows from the Scripture. Of course, of course, we, you, will have fellowship with others in the forever future. Don't doubt it for a single second. And let that promise and let that hope, like the New Testament says it should, soothe 
your griefs. And let it ease the sufferings of the present time. That's something else it's supposed to do. Let it give you endurance to, in, for the sufferings of this present time, which are not worthy to be compared with what's coming. And let it strengthen your willingness to sacrifice when serving the Lord requires it. And let it increase the reservoir of joy in the future that you can borrow from and take for yourself now. So that you can obey the New Testament command, rejoice always. Rejoice always. As we await what Peter calls Acts chapter 3, I think, the restoration of all things. Let's pray. Father, we have so much to look forward to because for us, this is not all there is. Thank you for the world of justice and renewal and fellowship that's coming. And thank you that your redeemed will have a part in all of it. Fill us with hope for that time. Let the glory that's to be revealed to us make us stronger in our faith, quicker to obey, more willing to sacrifice what cannot be kept in this world to gain what can never be lost in the next. And let us borrow from the joy that will be ours for all eternity that we might endure the sufferings of this present time with grace and with patience. Give those who are outside of Christ a willingness to trust in the words and works of Jesus. In a word, give them faith that they too might know the fellowship of the saints with their Lord and Savior and not be cast into the outer darkness, bereft of everything and everyone, alone. We pray in the powerful and precious name of Jesus, the only name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. Amen.